You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. So this installment is focused on franchises. John, you were saying people were mad at you when you uh, mentioned what today's topic was going to be. Expand on that. I was told should not skip the first one, even though the fourth one is a soft reboot. Okay, because I I have zero experience, well, almost zero experience with Fast and the Furious, one of today's franchises. I've seen half of the seventh one, the one that was Paul Walker's last movie. Besides seeing half of one movie, I have never watched any other movie, so I have really no frame of reference for any of this stuff, so you're really going to have to educate me. Oh, no. (laughs) And potentially some of our audience members on the Fast and Furious franchise. (laughs) Oh, no. I've seen just over half of the movies. (laughs) This is going to be a bit of a train wreck today, sir. Well, I'm curious, when I broached the topic with you, what made you think of Fast and Furious so quickly? Just, it was the first thing that came to my head, but like I said, the fourth one's a soft reboot. It's technically a different plot, but it's still the same characters. Vin Diesel disappears for two and three. Everyone disappears for three. Three was just a completely different movie that the studio bought and threw Fast and Furious on and then just had Vin Diesel do a cameo in the end so that it was connected. (laughs) So which ones have you seen? Oddly enough, all the odd ones. Watching Too Fast, Too Furious for this was the first even-numbered one I'd seen. Have you seen the first one? Yes. Good, so at least we have some point of reference there. That'd be kind of silly for you to say, skip the first one, if you haven't even seen the first one. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm saying skip it. No, yeah, you should skip the first one. Yeah, I've seen one, the Tokyo Drift, the fifth one where they steal a bank vault, the seventh one where The Rock arm wrestles a torpedo shot from a submarine and then the ninth one where they go to space i didn't really think of you as a fast and furious guy tempered a little bit by you saying you haven't seen all of them (laughs) but what keeps you coming back why have you seen so many of these if anyone sits down and says oh they're good move they're lying or they're delusional and they need to be checked into something Some sort of mental health clinic. (laughs) They're a party. If you're the type of guy to sit down and watch these alone, seek help. (laughs) You need to go with friends, be half in the bag, turn that brain off. These are not films. Don't use the word films. These are just parties. (laughs) From my perspective looking in on the series, first of all, I can't believe they've lasted this long. It's a very old series by now. Yes. And two, I just think of it as a stunt show spectacular. Yeah, it's a ride. It's a roller coaster. I don't want to use the word ride because it used to be all about cars. But (laughs) (laughs) now it's about going to space and trying to keep up with the Marvel movies. And I blame the Marvel movies for the way these Fast and Furious movies are now. Funny you say that because I was looking at the trajectory of Fast and Furious and noticed that the movies kind of adhered to a a classic action feel to them in the first few installments. And then by Fast Five in the 2010s, which by this point, Marvel was really starting to come into its own. They got longer and they got budgets into the 200 million. Yeah. I think there is some correlation between the beautiful thing that was Marvel phases one through three, and then its effect on other movies 
just becoming bloated blockbusters. You're right. You can 100% see that in the Fast and Furious franchise. The Fast Saga, as they're calling it now. I don't really think of it as a saga. I think Vin Diesel just added that in there because he's into Dungeons and Dragons, as we all know. Mm -hmm. So he has to make this a saga, or I'm surprised he hasn't called the last one uh, Chronicles or some (laughs) other kind of pen and paper word. (laughs) Let's pull back for a second, though. All right. Let me, for this episode, define what I think of as a franchise. How about a film series, let's say six or more, more than your standard trilogy? Because those are in that happy medium where there's multiple installments, but they haven't really turned into a money-making machine where we get to the sixth, seventh movie. When we're thinking franchises in those terms, what do you think are some of the usual tropes of this quote-unquote genre? Repeat characters, they definitely get quotey. Like, you have to have a catchphrase. Like, in Fast and Furious, when Diesel says family, like, every other line. He definitely has said family more in Fast and Furious than he said I am Groot in anything Marvel. Everything Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> We've just hit on something. I think he does it not because he likes catchphrases, but because I am Groot talking about family over and over again. It's easy for him to remember the script that way. <laughs> <laughs> just sitting around, oh, it's just family 40 times. Easy money. <laughs> Something else I feel like tends to be a staple of franchises. There really isn't a lot of narrative progress. Or if there is in an installment, it'll get brushed aside pretty quickly by the next one. Oh, yes. What do you think are some franchises that actually really benefit from having so many installments. For sure, Fast and Furious. I feel like that's why, almost why we're here. James Bond, the Bond franchise for sure, because people just want to see everything different with that guy. Monster movies, Godzilla. I think that definitely benefits from him having been around for 50 years and having almost 30 movies. I would also throw in a lot of slasher and horror franchises like Halloween, Friday the 13th. And I think what they seem to all have in common is that they're all very disposable in the best way possible. It's really not about the story. Let's see this character in this other situation. Let's see him through another director's viewpoint. Let's bring back this character and just kind of redo the same movie over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So let's start with Too Fast, Too Furious from 2003. And John, this was your pick for this episode. Give me a little summary of the plot. All right. So I'm just going to read this straight off the website. XLAPD cop. You cheater. <laughs> I've noticed in past episodes, I'm really bad at these recaps, especially compared to you. All right, here we go. XLAPD cop Brian O'Connor, played by Paul Walker, teams up with ex-con friend Roman Pierce, Tyrese Gibson, and works with undercover U.S. Customs Service agent Monica Fuentes, played by Eva Mendez, to bring Miami-based drug lord cartel Verone, Cole Hauser, down. Also, Ludacris appears. <laughs> yes, he does. He appears on the soundtrack. He's assaulting my ear holes, if not my eye holes. Half the dialogue in that opening scene is just lines from his songs. I'm surprised they didn't give him a written-by credit. Everyone was either, uh, move, bitch, get out the way, get back, get back. Like, that was 90% of the dialogue in that opening race. I'm surprised he wasn't winking at the camera. (laughs) Buy my merch, wink. He pulls out a (laughs) t-shirt. Did you see it when it came out initially? 
no, this was one of those convert films, especially when I told people that I'd only seen like half the franchise. People who love it would like, no, okay, so we're going to sit down, we're going to watch the, like, it was a cult type of thing. They taped my eyes open and made me watch Too Fast, Too Furious. <laughs> when I say I've seen every odd-numbered one, that I mean in theaters with friends. You were out of high school by this point. Yes, like, I just graduated when the first one came out. I felt like Andrew was a part of this in spirit, because when you said the Fast and Furious franchise, I groaned inside, <laughs> and I thought, oh my god, this is going to be a slog. <laughs> I'm here to make fun of it, too. I'm not here to support the franchise. That one that I only saw half of, it was in San Francisco. I was hanging out, and we went to a movie theater, and we were just trying to waste some time because we had some other engagement later in the day. And we bought our tickets, and we ended up going into the wrong theater because there was like five theaters, five rooms playing this. And we didn't realize until about 20 minutes in that we walked into the wrong screening, and it was already halfway into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Because so many movies now, they don't do credits. They just go straight into the movie. Mm -hmm. So we thought everything was fine. And we loved it. Because by that point, all the exposition was out of the way. And it was all just the action scenes. And then the credits started. And we went, oh, this is way too short. And then we walked out and realized, oh, man, we, we walked into the wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> but it did not matter. We still had a great time. Yes, even though it's ridiculous and on some level not worth a whole lot of accolades or as many sequels as it's had, I must say I actually really found this movie entertaining in a way that I was not expecting. This is the beginning of the ridiculousness. This introduces Tyrese and Ludacris to the franchise. You get reintroduced to Dominic Toretto in 4, so that's it. You don't need the first one. <laughs> a lot of people are going to argue because that's an actual movie, blah, blah. Just stop. You don't need it. What I think are references to the first movie, you can just chalk up to background information for Paul Walker's character. Yeah, they might as well have just had a previously on Fast and Furious segment in the beginning. <laughs> this one teaches you more to let go of your suspension of disbelief than the first one. And you need that more for the rest of the movies. The first one was more serious. You mean it didn't start with the Universal logo in Chrome? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was watching a Zucker Brothers movie. <laughs> it's like how a parody would start. See, it's letting you know that you're in for... You're in for it. Don't use brain now. <laughs> Some franchises take a while to go off the rails and turn into a parody of itself, but it feels like it already hit that mark with the second movie. <laughs> they tried too hard with the first one. We're trying too hard. It needs to be dumber, and they dumbed it down beautifully. In franchise sense, what do you think helped or hurt this particular film narratively to be part of the larger franchise? I think it was hurt by the lack of Vin Diesel, but, I mean, we got Tyrese. He eventually became the joke of the franchise. It helped that he was somewhat of a competent badass in this one. The bad guy, I think he helped because he was over the top. It let them go in that direction with the rest of the series. Could you also say you could skip this one and just start with the fourth one? Probably, yeah. <laughs> this is the problem. When you start talking with the hardcore 
fasties. Let's call them fasties. <laughs> I literally was on the phone with my buddy. He was explaining the whole franchise to me. He's like, you can't skip the first one. I was like, well, four is the soft reboot. He was like, yeah, but you need to know why those characters are there. And then, of course, three is the sequel to four and five. And then they undo all that with like six. And then seven just ignores it. And it's... <sighs> <laughs> Just don't watch the first one, guys. <laughs> and yeah, you could probably skip the second one, too. Let's dig a little deeper into the actual movie. Do you have any favorite scenes or characters or whatnot? I like the way that they worked. I think this is definitely Tyrese's best showing in all the movies. I like the way the characters work together. I do remember a scene when they were signing up people to be the drug runners, and Ava Mendez told the goons to get driver's licenses, and I was like, they're supposed to be illegal drug runners why are you worried about driver's licenses right now and also doesn't it hurt the mission to tell these guys to go out on a run and immediately take their licenses yes <laughs> it was like all right we're gonna run all your life make sure you're legal well we make you go run drugs and what four five six million dollars in duffel bags or whatever they eventually ended up running they were the most high profile quote-unquote low-key criminals ever I think the Joker is more low-key when he's trying to commit a crime. <laughs> it's a Fast and Furious movie. It's cars. I was thinking about racing and fast vehicles. And I was a little curious coming into it, how are they going to make it interesting, all the driving. And the opening scene where there's illegal street racing going on, first of all, there must have been like 200 people on that block. It's like a carnival going on. How is it the cops don't break that up immediately? <laughs> Someone had to have gone down to City Hall and got a vendor license. <laughs> Just, <laughs> like applied for the permit to have a festival. Once the race actually started, I was pleasantly surprised by the amount of camera work and the camera movement, the dynamic swooping between drivers and between their cars. A lot of fluid motion going on. It drew me right in. I mean, kudos to them for that. Yeah, they're supposed to be visual spectaculars. As I was watching it, because you were on the Movies That Flopped episode, as I was watching that first street race in this movie, I was thinking, man, this should have been Speed Racer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a valid point, sir. Sorry, Andrew. It's fun. It gets straight to the point. Paul Walker, say what you will about his acting, bro, but he's very charming <laughs> in ways that Emil Hirsch, unfortunately, didn't get to for me. Yeah, you want a professional racer to portray a professional racer. I think that was Paul Walker's, like, side gig was to be a professional racer. I feel like Fast and Furious 10 is gonna be, like, time travel with dinosaurs or something, but they should definitely do crossover with Speed Racer. Think about the poster. It's gonna say... Fast and Furious, and then right underneath it, Racer, and then beside those two, it's going to have X, because it's the 10th Fast and Furious, and it's Racer X, the bad guy from Speed Racer. This movie writes itself. <laughs> Racer X, he's the brother of the main character. Because it's about family. It's about family. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I counted the number of just races in this movie, never mind chases. So we got the beginning, there's the race where they're trying to prove themselves for the big bad guy, Verone, and then there's a third race for pink slips. 
I have to hand it to them. They found just about every motivation you could find for a race in this movie. I feel like that's probably why they abandoned it and just went, oh, they're super spies now. Look at them use this car to get rid of bombs. They should have had Paul Walker and Tyrese at one point race to get their laundry from the laundromat. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we need a bad guy suits and the place is going to close in 10 minutes. But it's across town. Go, go. <laughs> The main thrust of this movie is that Paul Walker gets into trouble again with his illegal street racing. He's going to work for the cops. He's going to bring down this drug lord. I think that's what his occupation was. His taxable income occupation was drug lord. Usually they bring in CIA, some of the bigger guns. No, this one is James Remar. He's a customs agent. <laughs> <laughs> Really shows you the stakes. The stakes are huge. For the first half of the movie, once Paul Walker and Tyrese get in good with the bad guy, okay, what do they actually need these high-profile drivers for? And then they mention, we need you to go to this trailer park. We're going to break down a wall. There's going to be a bunch of money hidden inside the wall. And because it's being cased by customs and everybody else, once they see you run away with the money, they're going to chase you, right? Mm-hmm. But answer me this, John, because I would really like to know. When they first arrive on the scene to pick up the money, isn't there a guy already there? There's a police officer pretending to be some old white trash lady at, like, the entrance, watching everyone come in. And then, like, one of the neighbors is also a cop, watching through the window constantly. They're both on stakeout. They never explain why the local police know any of this or onto him, considering the detective in charge of the whole thing is on the payroll of the drug lord already. And if they're watching this trailer... I mean the bald guy that they knock on the door, and there's already a guy living there. And I'm assuming he's got a connection to the bad guy, Verone, and he's just there house-sitting. But they basically tell him to scram, and then Paul Walker, Tyrese, and a couple of henchmen go in there, bust down the wall, get the money. But what I'm wondering is, what happened to that little bald guy that left the trailer? Didn't seem like anybody picked him up. No one picked him up. He might have just wandered off like, oh, that was terrible. I'm going to go get a sandwich. If he could just walk away from the trailer like that, why not just slowly bring the money out that way? Because sure, if you bring it out in six black duffel bags, it's pretty conspicuous. But if you already have somebody living there and he could slowly just take it out himself, because it doesn't seem like they're stopping everybody that leaves that trailer, you don't even need the drivers. You don't need the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the villain for a second, I was a little uh, unhappy with him. He was entirely serviceable for the plot, but with these movies that are already a bit ridiculous, I was hoping he would have a bigger shtick than just putting a rat in a bucket on a dude's stomach. That felt Bond to me. It was very Bondy, very romance dime novel evil. He seems to have some attraction toward Ava Mendez. He's jealous of Paul Walker talking with her. And I wish they had explored that a little bit more and just given us some more shades to this guy. Because otherwise, he's just constantly looking at everybody with that mean glare. 
They were standing on the shoulder of giants. They were trying to make him Scarface. A glare that says, you know what I really want to do right now? I want to put a bucket on you with a rat in it. (laughs) (laughs) I got a rat. I got a bucket. You and me, bro. You're a small guy. We're going to need a little pail for you and a mouse. Got a pail. I got a mouse. You and me, kid. The way this movie ends, does it feel like natural sequel bait to you? Obviously. It's the classic adventure formula. You know, freeze frame and credits. Everyone's midair trying to high five. Aren't they going to open up a garage together? I believe the term is they embezzled money from that quote-unquote evidence of the duffel bags. It was their fee for working for the cops. (laughs) (laughs) Whether the cops knew it or not. On the face of it, it feels like it would lead into a third one, but it doesn't really talk about, like, oh, we gotta go save this person, or oh, there's this lost treasure, we're gonna go to New Mexico and find it. It's not so surprising that the third one just seemed to completely be standalone. Do you think it's worthwhile on its own as its own movie? It is. If I'm remembering correctly, it originally was its own movie. Someone else made it, and the studio just bought it and turned it into a Fast and Furious movie by adding cameo of Vin Diesel in the end. I think the last thing I really want to mention about Too Fast, Too Furious, to its credit, I liked that they still had a lot of practical effects going on. That was very nice. They did a lot of things well, yes. And it really put it as part of that era where there was more thought put into the stunts. There's one moment where a car lands on the back of a boat. Tell me if I'm wrong, but didn't they really land a car on the back of that boat? Yes, they did. Even though you got some muscly stunt driver doing that bit, think about all the eggheads that sat in an office with calculators going, okay, if the boat is going this fast and the car is going this fast, what's the incline of that ramp? How do we get that to match? That's a beautiful picture you're painting right now, sir. (laughs) But you know what happened, right? It did happen, and it happens on every stunt ever. I remember in physics class in high school, our teacher would bring us real-world physics problems. A lot of them were just evil can evil stunts that some egghead had to sit down and figure out. Just like, okay, his bike weighs this much, he weighs this much, the gap's that much. We've got to figure out the top speed of the bikes this much, so we got to figure out the ramp and all that stuff. Like, it's a real-world thing. Science, kids. Part of my distaste for Fast and Furious stems from thinking it's silly. I don't believe anything that I'm seeing. It's just watching a cartoon, and automatically I think less of it because of that. I think it was six where they were jumping between skyscrapers that were a block apart, just trying to get a bomb off a car or something. Did they actually drive cars between buildings? No, that was all CG. (laughs) Oh my word. (laughs) Your shock is devastating. This series is going to supposedly come to an end after the next movie or two. Do you think it's a series that needs to end, or do you think they should keep going? And they went to space. When you go to space, that's it. Every franchise, when they get stale, they go to space. Super Mario did it in Mario Galaxies. Jason did it in Jason X. You got Moonraker. Moonraker, James Bond went to space. They've gone to space. You're done.
Next one we got, my choice, is the Wolverine from 2013. I will gladly acknowledge that you chose the far superior movie. I forgot how good that movie was. I cheated a little bit because this is in the greater context of the X-Men franchise. One could argue, sure, it's X-Men, X2, The Last Stand. Those are really just all Wolverine movies. They are. Brian Singer had this weird boner. <laughs> I was trying to think of a better word because I was like, are we PG? I forget. And then I realized, oh, we swear a lot. Boner's fine. Yeah, Brian Singer had a hard on for Wolverine. And it's just like. Wolverine or Hugh Jackman? Probably Hugh Jackman because, oh boy, he's shirtless a lot in this movie. And <laughs> hello, Hugh. Wolverine in his own film series. I'll call it a sub franchise. So I'm cheating a little bit because all those other X Men movies led into his series. So part of why I chose the Wolverine, you had all those other X movies to establish the character. If we're just talking Wolverine, not only centric, but also his name's in the title, we would start with X-Men Origins Wolverine, The Wolverine, and then Logan. I really think everybody should skip that Origins movie. For the context of what we're talking, yes, skip it because it's meaningless but also skip it in general. Talking about the Wolverine, the gist of it is Wolverine being such a long-lived character, he ends up in Nagasaki when they drop the atomic bomb. He's a POW at that moment. The Japanese are letting all their POWs free, but Wolverine is staying in his hole. He's safer there, and he ends up saving the Japanese guy that tries to release him. We skip ahead however many decades later. The Wolverine is sporting a wound after The Last Stand where he killed Jean Grey, his love. Which I read on a forum recently that if you put together all the screen time that Wolverine and Jean Grey were actually together, that was not enough time for him to really fall in love with her. (laughs) They spend like two weeks together at most. There's also the reality of the situation of he's like, what, 200 years older than her? He's a creepy old man. The same Japanese guy that he saved back in World War II. He's a big businessman, and he's on his deathbed, and he wants Wolverine to come out to Tokyo, pay some last respects. But of course, there's nefarious reasons for the trip that Wolverine will find out later. But come on, what do you think a dying man would want with a mutant that can't die? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like... You don't have to be beast to figure that one out. It would be the honorable thing to go and talk to this Japanese guy who I've only met once (laughs) on his deathbed. He's got no other reason for bringing me there. It's just to say hi. (laughs) Yep, that's it. He's spending all this money sending another mutant with this G5 jet to get me just to say goodbye. What version of the movie did you see? The version that's in theaters? Because there's a longer unrated bloodier cut and that's the version i saw for this episode and i've never seen it before i saw whatever the one was on hbo go even though it's only 10 minutes longer it really does add something it's bloodier they add a bit more exposition in places where i really think you need it to really give clarification to the whole japanese business subplot i would say go for the unrated cut do you recall if you saw the wolverine in theaters 
I did see the Wolverine in theaters because I read all the reviews and every single review addressed X-Men Origins. They're like, this ignores that. Go see the Wolverine. <laughs> I was like, okay. This is one of those instances in a franchise where I think everybody wanted them to skip the first one. <laughs> make no mention of it whatsoever. <laughs> Just don't bring it up. Any plot relevance, ignore that. And I think they did that. They addressed it in Deadpool 2 of how bad that movie was. One of the post credit scenes was him traveling back in time and erasing it from existence. Some jokes get stale after a while, or people's perspective shifts, and they go, ah, that's actually not such a great joke anymore, we like the movie. But I think all the shade thrown at that first Wolverine movie will be timeless. People 50 years from now will still think that movie sucks, and that joke in Deadpool is still going to be relevant. <laughs> it's going to be perfect. It's going to live forever. Thank you, Ryan Reynolds, for finally becoming an A-list movie star. What do you think about the franchise... How do you think it helps or hinders the Wolverine? It's like we talked about earlier with the other movies being too Wolverine-centric. I think it's smart to separate them. There's a lot of X-Men. It's supposed to be at about a team effort. So putting him in his own solo movie and keeping him away from the rest of the team, I think it worked perfectly for both of them. The other one was First Class. He had a cameo in it, but I thought that movie worked better without him because it was about the team effort. Those earlier Brian Singer movies... They were half in, half out. It is the X-Men, but we're really focusing on Wolverine, but not really giving him enough screen time to make his own story particularly worthwhile. So to come in where it's called the Wolverine, guess who we're going to be focusing on 100%? You're going to get as much Jackman as you can handle. <laughs> <laughs> Which might be too much Jackman. After Logan, you can't give me enough Jack. I couldn't agree more. Did you see the black and white cut of Logan? didn't sound like it was going to be uh, worth a watch. You liked it? I did. I thought it was great. Worked better, I would say. I think why I didn't want to watch Logan in black and white is because you then take away that effective crimson off the screen, and I didn't want to see it muted. Hmm. Okay. That's a solid point. I was trying to remember what the theatrical had versus this one. Even the theatrical cut did have a fair amount of blood, right? Is blood the only thing that counts towards the R rating or the unrated bits? Because when he's getting hit by the nuclear blast in the beginning, that's pretty gory. He loses all his skin. He doesn't bleed everywhere because it's cauterizing. He really does just look like a piece of meat that was left on the grill too long. Canon-wise, I don't think the radiation affects him. I don't think the radiation affects mutants in general. But it's a giant fireball coming at him. So I think, yeah, he should look like a seared steak. There's a grounding to this portrayal. The fact that so many of these superhero movies barely ever show you any blood, any consequences of these fights. And in the Wolverine, we see him get stabbed, shot. We see him cutting people up. And there's actually blood. There's actually a consequence to this violence. So that's very lovely. There's a lot of mutilation. Self-mutilation when he pulled the weird Lady Viper thing off his heart. Yeah, that was a gross moment, wasn't it? He didn't have his healing factor for a while, and he was still getting shot in the chest and just shrugging it off. It wasn't completely gone, right? It was just really hampered. That might have been it. I still like to think that even without his powers, he was just scary badass, because he was so used to pain. He's like, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> so he's fighting the Yakuza, 
and he takes his claws and he hooks it into a guy's calf and then flicks him up and makes him pinwheel a couple times. Oh, yeah. And then there's a spurt of blood that arcs with him. The blood was not in the theatrical cut, but the flip was. He starts the movie not wanting to be the Wolverine, which is so typical of sequels where the superhero doesn't want to be a superhero or loses his powers. Because we know him from all those other movies, we've been there with him for a while, and we understand why he would get tired of it, why he wants a rest. To quote Lethal Weapon, he's tired. I'm tired, Riggs. (laughs) (laughs) What were some of your favorite scenes or performances in this? I really like the train scene, especially when they're on top, and he couldn't rage his way through the situation like he wanted to. He raged a few times where he just let go of the train and flew at a man at 300 miles an hour to stab him, which should have exploded them. He weighs like six or 700 pounds. He's a heavy dude with all that adamantium. Yeah, with the adamantium skeleton, he's a heavy guy. So basically, he himself is also a bullet the size of Hugh Jackman, who's, I think, six foot 50. (laughs) (laughs) That scene in general was great when they had to jump over all the overpasses, and then he faked jumped. So the guy paying attention to him real jumped and got smacked by a sign. Something I don't think a lot of people will give the character credit for is that he is pretty smart as well as being very ferocious. So yeah, that's a great moment for him to show his smarts and go, I'm going to outwit somebody, not just slice him up. Theoretically, because of the memory loss, he doesn't remember it, but he's got battle experience. And plot-wise, what's great about it is that for most of the movie, he's fighting normal people, but you buy it because he's hampered by that thing on his heart. He doesn't know he's hampered by that. He just happens to be smarting. Going back to the performances, I really liked Hiroyuki Sanada, the guy who played main dude's son. I've seen him in a lot of movies, and I love him. I do like that guy, but it's one of those cases where Hollywood just doesn't seem to care to really develop minority actors, so he ends up being the Japanese guy in everything. (laughs) That's true. He does, but he's such a good actor. I don't want to say it's okay, but still. And do you think when he reads the script and he knows what part they're offering him, he goes, do I have to hold a sword again? Can I hold a martini or something? Can I be the next Bond? Yeah, he probably he's, <laughs> he wants to be Japanese Bond. He's just like, I want to drink, uh, I don't know what a Japanese martini would Just a martini, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to some of the commentary for this movie which was done by Mangold himself. He says, It's a movie about Logan and women. They call him on his BS, and he's interested in women, unlike men who just annoy him. I'm paraphrasing him. How would you respond to Mangold? It sounds like he doesn't understand women. (laughs) But I'd be like, so Wolverine likes to get it on. He's a horny man. Is that what you're saying, Mr. Mangold? I think he's touching on something that does come from the comics. For such a muscular, masculine character who's raging all the time and brooding, he does get paired a lot with young women. Shadowcat, Jubilee. He's had a few other female sidekicks, I'm sure. But it is an interesting pairing. I didn't think the bodyguard, Yukio, the girl with the pink hair... I just thought she was kind of unnecessary in this movie, and I wanted, if anything, why not just put Jubilee in there? 
That's a good point, because was Jubilee uh, of Asian descent in the, uh, I don't want to say comics, because I think they invented her for the cartoon, but she was of Asian descent, correct? Yeah, she's Asian, and she did appear in the comics first. Did she? Okay. Yeah, in like the mid to late 80s. What a missed opportunity. That was something I thought was lacking with all the other mutants they showed on screen in the X-movies. I don't think Jubilee has ever been a major part of any of those movies, right? They referenced her as a, see, we watched the cartoon moments, but she's not a character that was getting paid. Did you notice how good the lighting was in this movie? I did not. My wife, who is a lighting tech, did. I noticed there's great highlights and shadows. Even when they're outside, there's always a nice delineation between the darker shadows and the the lighter sides of the characters. And it looked really deliberate and stylish. Because that's how you draw a comic. Everything is a hard line. The shadow, the muscle, everything is a hard line to it. Mangold brought a quality to this movie that just wasn't there in the first one. I feel like there was no pressure, and they were able to just make a good movie because of how bad the first one that should never be seen is. That's an interesting point. Sometimes you need that first movie to be so unpalatable to get the better second movie, a la Wrath of Khan. Correct. Could Wrath of Khan existed if not for the lackluster response to the motion picture? Because they went and they got the director for the first Star Trek. They got the director of The Day the Earth Stood Still, and they were so excited for that. The movie was... I would say good, but we're not here to argue whether it's good or not. But it definitely spawned Wrath of Khan, and that makes it worth it. The Wolverine really juxtaposes with the first movie. From what I remember of it, they introduced like 20 characters. It didn't even feel like there was a director trying to keep it on tone. Whereas the Wolverine, there's definitely a tone. There aren't too many side characters, and it just seems like a sharper movie. Do you think the ending feels like natural sequel bait? Kinda. They had that post-credit tease leading directly into Days of Future Past. Or do you mean the part where he just gets on a plane and goes home? You're getting to what my point is, which is it feels like two different sequel baits. People generally think of it going straight into Days of Future Past because we've got Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen back. But look at them in that final moment at the airport, and then go to Days of Future Past. Is there really anything that makes you think, them in the airport? That's going to lead into this movie. Nothing about that suggests, (laughs) we're like, come with us, within a week, the whole world's going to be screwed. Doesn't Future Past open in the future with an older Wolverine? Wolverine himself is older. Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen are the same age. Storm is there. So really, the Wolverine, you know, there was like decades between that movie and Future Past in their chronology. That has to be. (laughs) I think they stopped caring about the timeline. He had the amnesia, and then this one, he remembers an old Japanese guy from World War II pre-amnesia, which I don't care. I'm fine. Like, no, I don't think anyone was upset about that plot hole. Screw it. Have fun. We're in Fast and Furious territory. Just have fun. What did you think of the Japanese backdrop? 
I thought it worked so well. I've never been to Japan, so I'm probably just horribly wrong. On like, it's probably just some racist monument or something. As a film, it might be, but I just I thought it worked really well. It gives it a real specificity, except for Canada. There really isn't a location that is focused on, and we really get to spend time there. This is the only one that goes to another country and lives there for a while. 80-90% of the movie takes place in Japan. All the other movies are like, they spend most of the time at the X-Mansion, which is supposed to be in quote-unquote upstate New York. Uh, (laughs) Did you ever go looking for it? No, you're still downstate, pal. They're like Poughkeepsie or something stupid. <laughs> you never get the impression that they're near New York. You know, it's just it's just a mansion in the countryside. They go and they do a fight scene. Was it Last Stand? They fight here after Magneto turns the Golden Gate Bridge into a walking path to Alcatraz? Yeah. That didn't feel like San Francisco at all. As someone who's currently sitting in San Francisco. <laughs> One other tidbit. Right after the funeral scene... When Wolverine is tugging along his Asian love interest through the streets of Tokyo, they did not have any permits to shoot on the street. So those moments, it's just them running through the streets. Oh, wow. Okay. Multi-million dollar production, and Mangold just flat out states in the commentary, yeah, we stole those shots. (laughs) (laughs) When you see people in the background watching Hugh Jackman run, they're genuinely surprised. Because it's not like, oh, I'm an actor, what's going on here? It's, I'm a human being, and that's Hugh Jackman. There are moments where I'm thinking, the Japanese people in the scene, they don't seem to really be that concerned watching bloody people run through the streets and run right by them. And it turns out those weren't even extras. (laughs) (laughs) They just have a high tolerance for weird crap happening. Maybe like New York City. They'd be like, ah, that's not a dude dressed as a squid trying to bang a cat person, so... You know what, I'm going to let that one go. Like, oh, was that Hugh Jackman? No, it couldn't be. Not in Tokyo. (laughs) Not in Tokyo. Why would he be here? Any final thoughts you got on The Wolverine? It's a better movie than its predecessor. It's a better movie than what I chose. I forgot how good it was. I think The Wolverine is one of those three or four out of the whole series. It's really well made. People will enjoy it on its own merits outside of the fandom. Yes. So I'm going to go to my favorite segment, which is TLDL, Too Long Didn't Listen, where we summarize our talk on some level with some quick, pithy questions for you to give very short, ideally one-word answers. So let us begin. Would you put The Wolverine in the top two or three Logan performances in the Fox X-Men movies? Yes. Does Too Fast, Too Furious suffer without Vin Diesel? No. I will add, unfortunately. (laughs) Do you think Wolverine is better in team stories or solo adventures as far as the films go? Solo. He definitely solo. If Paul Walker was still alive, do you think he should have continued with the franchise or just let his character end where it did or maybe even sooner? Pass. Walk away. I think they're better. I think currently I don't... You just did a pun there. (laughs) Walker. (laughs) Paul Walker away. They work without him. I don't know if they're better without him, but they work without him. I'm going to leave it at that. The Asian love interest, Mariko, in The Wolverine... 
Did you buy her as a love interest for him? Love? No. I can see what he was interested in, but I don't buy it as a love interest. And finally, who's a better sidekick? Rogue in X-Men, Yukio the pink-haired girl in this movie, or Laura, his surrogate daughter in Logan? Oh, fuck. (laughs) I'm gonna go... X-32. I'm gonna go his surrogate daughter. His clone. A.K.A. X-23. X-23. Ah, dyslexic. You got close. That's so close. (laughs) So close, I thought you did that on purpose for a split second, and then I remembered who I was talking to. I had the right numbers. I just took up the wrong order. (laughs) 